Dwayne. My name is Jaden Duenas. This is Join the Discourse. I'm recording this January 2nd. Uh, it's a Saturday, 1st of 2021. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. I hope you uh, enjoyed this little break if you got one or at least just this like end to the year if if you got one I mean at this point everything already feels the same so I don't know if it really felt like much of a break but I hope you were enjoy enjoyable um and able to enjoy your break regardless uh so yeah this is January 2nd first episode of 2021 I'm gonna be coming with a lot more this year a lot more regularly a lot more content so please stay tuned again this is called join the discourse a discourse is a scholarly discussion of different sorts so you need more than one person for that and i hope that you'll be able to enjoy me um join me sorry not enjoy me join me in this discussion uh starting today or going into the future you can find all this at jd-originals.com you can find past videos you can find the live streams when they're around but today i'm gonna get right into this so basically there's this idea of how the media covers black men in two different ways simultaneously simultaneously um and the thing is they they kind of contradict each other these two different ways of media portrayal on the one hand it shows black men as being like aggressors as being violent as being uh, criminal um and that's you know fed into the war on drugs and mass incarceration into slavery into all these different other forms of subjugation that we see throughout history but on the other hand we see this narrative of black success and black millionaires we see people like diddy and jay-z we see people like Michael Jordan, Oprah, Barack Obama, uh, you know, these legends, these superstars, these people who've amounted to so much in the world. Um, and we and we look at them and we think that if they exist and their success exists, then clearly racism cannot exist or this other media narrative that that hinders black people and black men cannot exist. But that's not the case. Uh, the media portrays black men simultaneously as aggressive and as criminal and so that's what the topic of this video is about um and in order to cover that i'm going to be reading from this essay that i wrote uh, i wrote it in the spring of 2020 so it was actually for a class at boston university um and uh yeah it was it was hard to write back then it's hard to read right now the the truth that we have to come to terms with um in terms of this subject but but yeah i'm just going to get right into it um i'm just going to share my screen here so that if you are interested in reading you can but you can also find this essay at jd-originals.com um, i've got all my essays there that i've like published you know um so yeah i'm gonna share that boom and we're gonna go right over here into my essays and research page so again, this is JD. You can see I had to save the the, the website as a file here, but this is my website, uh, my essays page, uh, jd-originals.com. You can find a whole lot of things here. I've got a video here that I did, um, like a research-based video, but this one right here, spring 2020, is the one that I'm going to be reading today. So I called it Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde is this. I'm going to sum it up very briefly because Jekyll and Hyde could be a very complicated concept. Um, Jekyll and Hyde is basically like two personalities, a divergence, uh, some sort of disparity between one thing and another. 
Um, and so I called this this duality between these two types of media coverage. I called this Jekyll and Hyde because they're so vastly different. Um, and this is a brief little brief little excerpt thing, I guess. But I'm just gonna go straight into here, uh, and we are going to zoom in quite a bit here. Okay, here we go. So to begin. Jekyll and Hyde, the duality of black male news coverage by the American press. For decades, black Americans have raised concern over the media's portrayal of black men through their music, literature, and other forms of art in academia. Black men in the news are often portrayed violently by criminal activity and drug use, portrayals that are dangerous because of how they influence public perception and create negative stereotypes. The influence of stereotypes on public perception is dangerous because of the estimation of risk it creates in those who are outside of the stereotype demographic. Due to this phenomenon, black communities are generally perceived to be dangerous by non-black people. In the 2010 article, Estimating Risk, Stereotype Amplification, and the Perceived Risk of Criminal Victimization, authors Quillian and Pager found that the perceived threat of criminal victimization in predominantly black neighborhoods is significantly overestimated in comparison to the actual rates of victimization. That was a, a, a word, a mouthful to say. So uh, what that means is that the perceived threat of victimization is basically how you feel threatened in a in an area that you're unfamiliar with and so what this is saying is that the perceived threat of victimization that perception of how you're threatened in an area is very overestimated it tends to be overblown uh, to a point where it's actually not it's not accurate to the actual level of threat that you actually are in right then so this is saying that non-black people typically have they typically significantly overestimate their threat uh their feeling of being threatened when in a black neighborhood um whereas that threat that they actually face does not match up to what they feel that's basically what that's saying so they also found that a neighborhood's racial composition is consistently associated with perceived risk of victimization despite actual victimization risk being driven by non-racial factors so again it's the racial composition meaning like black people versus white people versus uh, versus doesn't mean against in this way but just all these different types of different ethnic and racial groups um the the neighborhood's racial composition in that way is associated with their threat even though those threats are actually associated to things they have like nothing to do with race whatsoever much more has to do with like socioeconomic status and different environmental factors that are completely like regardless of race um and so the perception of race as a factor that drives criminal activity is based in racial stereotypes propagated by the media this is the part where i'm going into the media having a role in this the media depictions of black men that we see today are generally consistent with the stereotypical depictions of black men following the american slave trade images of criminality savage behavior animalistic tendencies that justify the mistreatment of black people these depictions are found widespread throughout the rising film industry of the 20th century and in the advertising industry that has historically been saturated by caricatured black people. In contrast to film and advertisement, hard news media has mostly steered clear of blatant stereotypes and racist commentary due to the medium's basis in reporting known facts. Uh, however, racism in hard news media can still be found in racially coded language that creates connections in the viewer's mind in order to present a specific image of the subject. So what I'm saying is essentially media or sorry, the news, uh, the press is supposed to be this very um, this very 
objective point of view. It's supposed to be just stating facts. It's supposed to be, you know, on this date at this time, this is what happened. Here's all you need to know about it. Um, but what I'm saying is that although that is true to an extent that they try to be very objective in the news, um, racism can still be found in racially coded language. So that just means things that aren't explicitly racist or explicitly calling things out. In other words, I believe people call that dog whistling as well. It's kind of like a very silent light whistle, like so people understand what you're saying um, without explicitly saying it. And so the news uses these, this coded language to engage in uh, a racist action, racist behavior, um, and in order to portray black men in one way or another. Um, so yeah, to present a specific image of the subject. Through this racially coded language, hard news media from sources such as the New York Times have worked throughout American history to portray black men in a particularly stereotyped light and therefore form public perception of black men in America in accordance with their negative depictions. More recently, the hard news narrative for black men doesn't just include violence, but also includes a number of positive stories on black celebrities. So this is where the Oprah, black, uh, Barack Obama, people like that come into play. Some may look at this change in news coverage as a progressive moment in a post-racial United States, but there is really much more here to explore. In reality, the shift in news coverage has been used to obscure the continuously violent and criminal narrative of regular black men by glorifying black men of celebrity status. The racist narrative of black violence and criminality has diverged into two separate narratives, a Jekyll and Hyde duality based on the good-evil split personality of Dr. Henry Jekyll, good, Mr. Edward Hyde, evil, uh, and Mr. H Edward Hyde, evil, um, and Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 story, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, so that that's kind of the backstory of Jekyll and Hyde. It comes from this uh, story from the 19th century. In this duality, one black man is maintained as a threat, Hyde, uh, the evil, while the other is an inspiration for American progress, Jekyll. So that's kind of the divergence there, although both are really one and the same. Today, the Jekyll and Hyde duality exhibits itself in the form of covering wealthy black men like Jay-Z with praise, while generalizing masses of other black men as violent and impoverished. However, the question remains as to how we got here as a society. How has the media's depictions of black men in the news changed over time into where we are today? Let's explore some ways that news coverage of these men has changed throughout history. Um, I just realized I took a very decided course of language there, said these men. Um, and I'm going to elaborate that just for a second. So <laughs> I say these men uh, referring to black men, and I'm not including myself in that group. That's very decisive because, as you can see, I'm not the blackest of men. <laughs> I'm very, uh, very light-skinned individual. I'm biracial. I'm going to just have that on this channel from here on out. So I'm going to just refer people to this episode. Episode 5, you can find out that um, I'm not Mexican. <laughs> I'm not Puerto Rican. Um, I am Cuban, half Cuban, but that's it. I'm half Afro-Cuban and half um, white American. Uh, and so that's why I say these men. I'm not including myself in this narrative because I haven't found... Um, that these media depictions apply as much to myself. And that's a very like, priv privileged position to be in for myself um, because they do very much uh, work toward a depiction of people like my father, my uncle, you know, people in my family, people who are my friends and my neighbors, associates, peers, etc. Um, but I'm decidedly kind of excluding myself from this. Although the the historical, like the... The repercussions, you know, the implications for this um, do 
apply on me. They do have an effect on me. It's just not as direct. These depictions aren't calling to me. I would say that in my own experience, I'm more um, like uh, depicted by Latino and, you know, Hispanic depictions of the media than I am of black depictions. Uh, just because like on the surface, you know, that's really what it comes down to. So the method by which I was able to do this analysis. So my method, in order to explore this change from a single narrative into the Jekyll and Hyde duality, I sorted through New York Times print and online articles to analyze the language used in both headlines and body text ranging throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Through the massive articles, I separated positive Jekyll stories about key celebrity figures from negative Hyde stories about the general community of black men, along with the historical context that the articles were published within. To map the change throughout history, I looked at five eras of Amer modern American history in relation to black culture and the black male community. Reconstruction and early Jim Crow, which was 1865 to 1939. Uh, the second, you know, modern, uh, not modern, yeah, modern, modern American period would be the early civil rights movement, which is 1940 to 1959. The third was the peak of the civil rights movement, along with the war on drugs, which ranged from about 1960 to 1989. Um, War on drugs didn't last until 1989, but that's the kind of the end of the start of the war on drugs. Um, the 1990s basketball and super predator eras of the 1990s until 2010s, uh, which would be the fourth era. And then finally, the last era would be the contemporary period of quote unquote today, uh, using articles from 2010 to 2016, the last available date for the gathered data. So I then used the information in my analysis to generalize these trends to a, one second, I don't know why that happened. <laughs> I'm going to turn that off. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I'm not sure why that happened. Uh, yeah, so that was the last available date. So that, those are the four, five um, eras, the periods that I'm going to be discussing here. Um, and that's kind of the, the year by year breakdown of how I'm analyzing these articles. So through the eras, the first one we're talking about is Reconstruction and Early Jim Crow. Let's get reading here. The end of the American Civil War marks the beginning of a new form of slavery. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln signed the 13th Amendment to, uh, to the United States Constitution, stating that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime shall exist within the United States. That's Section 1 of the 13th Amendment. Uh, the most important part of this document lies in the words, except as a punishment for crime, because following the 13th Amendment was an era of criminalizing former slaves in order to imprison and enslave them again. A series of racist state legislation known as black codes appeared that allowed the prosecution of black people for acts such as vagrancy, loitering, and using white-only facilities. Um, that's from an article called Racism and Post-Emancipation America. I've got a full list of, of bibliography at the end um, that you're able to see if you're watching the video. If you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, just go watch the video. Um, conviction on one of these counts would land a black person right back onto a plantation. This period is known as the Jim Crow era. So in 1922, the Times, New York Times, published an article headed by Negro Bandit Kills Two Police Detectives, Murders Rent Guard, and published Negro Stabs Boy years earlier in 1907. So these are two different articles, two different headlines um, that we see from the New York Times in this first era. Uh, and this starts the depiction of the, the Hyde depiction, the, the bad, the evil criminal depiction of black men in America. 
In each article, the journalists write of white victims and include their names, families, and other humanizing information almost immediately. In contrast, the black suspects in similar articles of this era are only ever described as quote-unquote Negroes. In the 1922 article, the writer mentions the suspect's name as Luther Body, 25 lines down, and then calls him a quote-unquote cop fighter in line 26. Further down in the 1907 page, we read Negro shot by a policeman, which was a headline, a story about a murderous quote-unquote Negro again, who was shot by quote-unquote policeman Pertel. So you can see the, the difference between how the the murderous Negro is depicted versus policeman Pertel. Just thinking about that language that's being used there. One is murderous Negro and the other is policeman Pertel, giving an occupation, giving a last name, and the first calling them a savage, essentially. That can be broken down into a savage shot by good upstanding human being, you know. Um, and then finally we read, quote-unquote, the headline, quote-unquote, held up in 27th Street, an article about three, quote-unquote, men who held up another man for his wallet. So this disparity in language used to describe the suspects in the final article, um, calling them just three men instead of murderous Negro. Um, that disparity um, is... is used to describe the suspects in the final article compared to the first three articles it depicts the overarching disparity in language used to describe black and white suspects so those three men that held up the man for his wallet those are white suspects murderous negro that's a black suspect so you can see the disparity there between the criminal um the, the criminal the perpetrator in this situation um and as well as against the actual um, the, the police and the like role in the state and the you know white America that representative the that side of the story. <clears throat> so when journals such as the New York Times portray black men exclusively in this violent hide sort of light, it perpetuates the stereotype that these men act exclusively in violent ways. Uh, effectively, this language altered public perception of black men and influenced the ensuing public policy placed to their detriment throughout the Jim Crow era. Articles like these contributed to the public perception of black men and the justification of criminalizing black men for re-enslavement in the prison system. So the second era then is the early civil rights movement. Halfway through the 20th century, the narrative surrounding black men began to shift and the Jekyll Hyde duality appeared. In the span from 1940 to 1959, the American news media saw the early civil rights movement as activists pushed for social integration, voting rights, and against police brutality. When this mass protest movement came to the national prominence during the mid to late 1950s, the New York Times printed articles such as Four Negro Areas Get Extra Police Units in 1959 and Negro Lag is Linked to Inferior Schools in 1956. So these two articles are sort of examples of the language that was used and the, the headlines that were displayed um, during the civil rights movement. So during this era of black excellence, you know, Martin Luther King, etc. Um, all coming together, all aggregating people of all different backgrounds, creating the, the movement for black people, the civil rights movement, creating the poor people's movement. Um, and in response, the media, the media calls to attention, not all that, although it was brought to attention on other days, but I want to focus on these articles where the media responds to the civil rights movement and responds to these different, um, you know, political movements and political heroes um, with words like this, telling people that four Negro areas get extra police units.
instead of these Negro areas, quote unquote, um, fighting for their lives, fighting for their freedom. Um, and then the second one, Negro lag is linked to inferior schools. So instead of, you know, working alongside the black community, which we wouldn't expect them to do because of the era, because of who they are in the era. Um, but, you know, rather than coming alongside black people and celebrating that, that struggle, celebrating the success, um, they called them out for inferior schools. Um, and that's something that was very out of the control of the black community at the time uh, during, you know, segregation. This is right after um, Brown versus Board of Education, which I'm going to get to in a sec right here. So the remaining objective, neither of those articles explicitly express a need for increased police presence in the black community, nor a racial inferiority for black students. However, the language used in these two articles presents clear ideas, mostly informed by the headlines, for readers' opinions to be shaped by. And the headline is important. I put that in mostly informed by the headlines for a reason. Headlines are important because a lot of people, more than you think, are reading through that page by skimming across the headlines, looking for something. And if they're not interested in reading the story of Negro lag is linked to inferior schools, then all they know is that Negro lag is linked to inferior schools. You know what I mean? So the headlines are very important here. So two articles present clear ideas, mostly informed by the headlines, for readers' opinions to be shaped by. The first idea links unnamed black neighborhoods uh, to a need for police reinforcement, implying that there is a need, something so drastically wrong in these neighborhoods that the police presence was necessary to control the black community there. The second idea affirms black inferiority and therefore white supremacy through learning abilities and the ability to build and sustain high-performing schools in their respective communities. This story of educational inferiority in the face of Brown versus Board of Education only a few years earlier continued to push the idea of educational segregation into the minds of a white American audience. Each of these articles speaks to the quote-unquote hide side of the narrative of black people in the United States, um, presenting the general black population as inferior and in need of controlling by a white American government. On the other hand, figures such as Jackie Robinson emerged during this era. Robinson was covered not only in a neutral voice with objective facts, but was even praised for his achievements by the New York Times as they covered Robinson, his football career at UCLA, um, in an article that explains that, uh, and the progress and in social integration made by Robinson and Branch Rickey, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, the, Times covered, er, the Times coverage of Jackie Robinson is one of the best examples of the Jekyll Hyde duality of black male media portrayal. On one side, we have journalists affirming and influencing their audience to believe in the stereotypes of black inferiority and violence. On the other side, we see the same organization and journalists praising a black man for his athletic accomplishments and his push against racial segregation in sports. Both of these narratives were pushed at the same point within history and worked to create two separate black identities for readers to either love or fear. So at the same time that the New York Times is calling, or I guess is celebrating social integration, racial integration, um, through the celebration of Jackie Robinson, um, they're also contributing to that segregation, contributing to the system of, of uh, you know, social control that was Jim Crow and is racism. Um, and so, yeah, the, the next era, there's the peak of the civil rights movement going into the war on drugs. Um, and those are tied together in history because they are very, they, they have a lot to do with each other. The war on drugs wasn't accidentally sparked right after the civil rights movement um and so we're gonna get into if you want to learn more about that i also just reading the new jim crow i'm reading that right now incredible book michelle alexander is an incredible um 
author, researcher, etc. Um, but also the movie 13th by Ava DuVernay. Um, but yeah, we're just going to get into this for now. Years later, during the peak of the civil rights movement and the rise of black nationalism in the 1960s, figures such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Muhammad Ali were celebrated with the quote-unquote Jekyll side of dual media coverage, so the good side. Both of these figures were covered with negative media attention at various points throughout their careers and even within this single era. However, each was largely valued for their contribution to social justice and the sports world. Ali was celebrated in 1967 for having donated to the United Negro College Fund to support historically black colleges and universities. He was also often praised for his boxing achievements and for being the self-proclaimed greatest as seen in the, in the, yeah, the 1971 article, Muhammad Ali, Man of Controversy. Um, similarly, Dr. King was frequently cited with proper credentials and as a spokesman for Negroes uh, in an article entitled Spokesman for Negroes. Um, the Times recognized Dr. King's academic achievements at Morehouse College, Crozer Theological Seminary, Boston University, and his status as a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in a 1964 article titled Men with the Dream, Martin Luther King Jr. This portrayal of Reverend Dr. King presents a clearly different narrative from the articles of unnamed, violent, and inferior uh, black people from less than 10 years prior. However, the disparity in portrayals of black men is still very much present in the rest of the 1970s and 80s as well. Whereas Dr. King and Muhammad Ali were praised for their contributions, the regular black men of America were still found to be unnamed in the media and demonized by President Richard Nixon's war on drugs. This era gave rise to the media's use of language like urban and inner city, which are commonly associated with black Americans, versus suburb or middle class, which are commonly associated with white Americans. During this time, the Times published articles that demonized crack cocaine as a devastating issue for the inner city, quote unquote, and claimed crack's newfound grip on the suburbs, quote unquote. Um, that's from an article I read from Malcolm in 1989. Uh, they also published articles that connected the use of drugs like crack to violence in predominantly black communities, uh, James 1988. In some ways, phrases like the inner city and urban have become the new quote unquote Negro, that they've replaced the term Negro uh, in a hard news headline. So I'm just clarify that. I'm saying that the words inner city, word urban, when you see those in the media, when you see the news using language like that, it now takes the place of where they used to say Negro. So instead of saying uh, you know, what was the other one? It was Negro, Negro lag links to inferior schools. Now they talk about how the inner city kids, their lag, their inferiority comes from inferior schools. You know what I mean? So it's just a switch up on the language. That's what I mean by racially coded language. Um, yeah, so allowing journalists to craft. So words like inner city and urban have become the new Negro in hard news headlines, allowing journalists to craft negative connotations about unnamed black people that they write about. By connecting specific black neighborhoods or simple phrases such as inner city or urban to violence and drug abuse, the Times was able to continually influence public perception of black Americans throughout the ongoing drug epidemic. Uh, the next era, the fourth era, I believe, um, is the super predators uh, as well super predator era as well as the 90s basketball so later in the 1990s crack was continuously used as a tool to demonize black communities um, however cases such as the boys in the 1989 central park five case maintained media attention throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s as well in the case a white female jogger was beaten raped and left to die at central park in new york city the suspect fled the scene and when police showed up to investigate they assumed the perpetrators were the group of young men of color 
The boys were tried and sentenced to various prison terms, but had their charges vacated in 2002 when the true perpetrator, who was already serving a life sentence, confessed to the crimes committed. As the U.S. news media continued to cover this story throughout the 90s, phrases such as super predators, rampage, and ferocity came about to describe black and Latino youth, stemming from the media's use of these phrases. Um, and so this violent and predatory, predatory narrative for young men created even more violent stereotypes to depict these boys across America and even brought Donald Trump, um, yes, Donald Trump, to place full-page advertisements in four New York newspapers calling for the state of New York to reinstate the death penalty for the five boys in the Central Park Jogger case. Let me remind you that these are teenagers we're talking about. This isn't from the article. Let me remind you that this this is a group of teenagers we're talking about and a grown man, a wealthy white man, um, called for the death penalty in a state that already had already ceased using the death penalty, specifically called to put these five boys to death, um, and they were totally innocent. So I'll let you do what you want with that. Um, at the same time that this predatory narrative was unleashed, Michael Jordan was celebrated for his great athletic ability and the hope he brought to Chicago sports fans. Um, and shout out MJ. I'm not going to bash on MJ at all. This is just part of the article. <laughs> uh, the Times covered Jordan's statistics game by game and published many articles documenting the Chicago Bulls journey with Michael Jordan throughout the 90s. Even Barack Obama was covered positively by the New York Times at the beginning of his political career in a 2004 article titled, Everybody Loves Obama. The article notes his East African heritage and his inspiration to the nation of Kenya as he speculated on a future presidential bid. As two black men with fame and wealth were continuously showered with praise, young boys who are reminiscent of each of the famed men in their boyhood were demonized and called to death for a crime they did not commit. And so the final era is today. Today, this duality of narratives continues and is obvious in such cases uh, as that of rapper and entrepreneur Jay-Z, born Sean Carter. Throughout the 1990s and 2000s, Carter was one of the originators of New York gangster rap. He repeatedly rapped about the street life, making money, and selling crack cocaine in New York. He grew up in the Marcy Housing Projects in Brooklyn, New York, and rapped about abiding by all of the violent and criminal stereotypes placed on him by the media. By all accounts, it makes sense that he would have been covered by the media with the hide side of the duality, the evil side, um, as he perfectly fit the portrayal of a violent and criminal black man. In the years as he grew to fame, he actually was covered with Hyde narrative, with the Hyde narrative, and the New York Times published articles associating him with violence, such as the 1999 article, Police Arrest Hip-Hop Star and a Stabbing at a Nightclub. Um, that hip-hop star was Jay-Z. They arrested him for that stabbing. In this headline, Carter has written a very similarly to the Hyde headlines present throughout the majority of the 20th century as an unnamed, quote-unquote, hip-hop star, um, which is racially coded. You, we, when you hear hip-hop star, you know what comes to mind. Um, and that person, that hip-hop star who possibly committed a violent act similar to being written as an unnamed, quote-unquote, Negro or hip-hop star, racially coded again, um, or someone unnamed from the, quote-unquote, inner city. However, this depiction of Jay-Z did not last long, and as soon as he brought wealth and a claim to his name as a billionaire, news coverage shifted toward the Jekyll side for him. Now, the Times writes of Sean Carter as an American pop culture icon and activist. Um, Jay-Z himself and his gradual shift from the streets to a massive wealth personifies the Jekyll-Hyde duality of U.S. news media and how it narrates the lives of black Americans to create stereotypes. While other artists like Jay-Z, such as Chicago rappers Twista, Common, Bump J, who all share a similar rags to Rich's story, are glorified by the press now, 
The general narrative surrounding the ordinary black Chicagoans without wealth and a fame uh, continues to be one of inner city violence and an urban crisis. Uh, there's two articles to support that as well. And so why is it that black Chicagoans such as Twista, Common, and Bump J, who lived amidst the city's good, bad, and ugly, um, and were lucky enough to make it out, why is it that they're separated so much from the city's portrayal uh, of being violent and drug addicted, specifically for its black inhabitants? So this is where we're going to discuss some of these errors real quick, just to just to cap off this uh, this essay and this discussion. So since the end of the Civil War, the U.S. news media has been used as a tool of social construction to portray black people in a violent and negative light, therefore creating negative stereotypes. However, the media has since diverged from this violent narrative to create two separate narratives that can be described as Jekyll and Hyde, one that proclaims progress and celebration for wealthy black men, and a separate narrative that continues to push a violent and criminal stereotype onto the average black man. This duality has effectively allowed Jekyll news coverage to obscure the Hyde narrative, leading some to assume a post-racial nation. However, the truth is that both narratives remain and have great implications for the black community as a whole. With the Hyde narrative still at large in the U.S. news, examined here within the New York Times, yet present across the nation, negative stereotypes continue to lead the American public to be misinformed about the actual risk of victimization, criminal victimization, in black communities, and to be misinformed about the humanity of the black community as a whole. So, to wrap that up, that's just to say that uh, all of these depictions of, the, of black men in America um, feed into the public um, misperception, the perception that they're likely to be victimized in the black neighborhood. It leads to the stereotypes that create that, that cognitive frame, that mental framework to think that you're going to be victimized and threatened. Um, so the trend throughout the five examined eras seems to show that the duality was initiated with the emergence of black celebrity figures such as Jackie Robinson in the early to mid 20th century. The formation of this duality may have been caused for various reasons. However, social factors such as obscured racism and increased classism definitely seem to be at play. The fact remains that the figures celebrated by the media are often examples of extreme wealth. When racism has repeatedly been connected to classism throughout history, it makes sense that racialized news reporting walks along the class lines as well. Uh, class meaning socioeconomic class. So it's, it's not surprising that the way that the world and the U.S. media talks about race falls along the same lines that we talk about money and social class, um, you know, upper class, middle class, lower class, being like poor people. Um, <clears throat> it may seem to some that classism cannot be at play here due to Martin Luther King Jr. being included in media praise, uh, who was a man who was not necessarily wealthy and who fought for social and uh, socioeconomic equality. Um, but I believe that Dr. King was celebrated as much as he was, not because of wealth, but because of the immediacy of his fame within the American population and also because of his nonviolent, turn the other cheek uh, rhetoric. In other words, figures who do not represent massive wealth were praised by the media because of their undeniable fame within the American public and were further praised because the media recognized the innocence and non-threatening nature of these figures. On the other hand, figures such as Malcolm X did not receive much praise uh, as he was instead portrayed as violent and militant by the times due to his combined quest for economic equality and his self-defensive threatening rhetoric in support of the black community. So going forward, this model of divergence can take one of several courses. The duality may persist as it has for the 20th century and now into the 21st century. It may continue to further diverge to its two extremes as class divisions increase in the United States, especially recently within this coronavirus pandemic era. Um, as you know, 
the world created 86 billionaires during this pandemic uh, as I, I think it no the country sorry created 86 billionaires well I think it was like something like 8 million or not 80 million I, I wouldn't believe 80 million but I think it's 8 million people slipped into poverty like within the past some amount of months um, so as like class divisions like that increase it could cause this this differentiation this media um, divergence uh, to persist and it may just continue to diverge to two different extremes as it has already um, or it could possibly be expelled in the future. Um, and the third path would be the most ideal for the betterment of race relations uh, in the black community in the United States of America. The third path being expelled in the future. Like, that was kind of unclear, actually. Um, so, although ideal, to remove a media trend that has persisted for almost 100 years now seems nearly impossible. Um, however, if it is to be done, it will take the work of all Americans and U.S. news outlets to recognize the reality that no one group behaves or believes in a certain way, according to a misrepresentative stereotype. News outlets must continue reporting on objective known facts and, rather than use language that demonizes and partitions one group for another, should allow space for members of any one group to have a publicly heard voice so that others can understand the root of any problems, can understand what the community has already done to respond to these problems, and can understand what the community needs from others to further respond to these problems. In a world where we can wake up and read a morning paper that outlines a community in need, the positive response from that community and how us as readers can help from our position, we may finally see the just and equal society we have strived to see, but have been repeatedly guided away from by hard news journals of America. So real quick, I'm just gonna go blah, boom. There we go, we are back on, on the main camera. So, wow. There's a lot to a lot to process there, but essentially, I wrote that because of the the divergence in media that I saw. You know, I see, um, and I include that section on Chicago as well because that's where I'm from. I'm from suburban Chicago right now, but my family is all from the city of Chicago and the suburbs of Chicago and the following, you know, metropolitan area and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I see this divergence in media coverage, specifically about Chicago. I see people talking about um, these Chicago rappers, these examples of wealth and status and celebrity from Chicago. Um, and then I see the way that people of Chicago are talked about um, and the way the city is talked about and even the suburbs are talked about. Um, you know, I think that... I think that that differentiation is going to have a lot of impacts going into the future right now, um, going into these next few years of the, the 2020s era. Um, and I think that as much as I, you know, laid out at the end there, the, the way that would work well, you know, we could be doing this, we could be having the media narrate our lives in this way instead, and it would be more beneficial for everyone. Um, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen unless like they just take it upon themselves to do that clearly. Um, but I don't know that that's going to happen. And so my prediction, my analysis is that we're going to continue to see these class lines, um, these, these class divisions just continue to diverge. Um, and it's, it's our job to just remain aware and continue to be analytical um, and continue to do what we can to make sure that these depictions aren't altering our perception of reality. Again, the, the first thing that I started out with was that people perceive themselves 
non-black people perceive themselves to be more highly threatened in black neighborhoods than they would in any other sort of racially defined neighborhood um, because of an overestimated perception of risk. So overestimated perception of risk, the risk that isn't really there, but you perceive it to be there anyway. We need to be aware of these sorts of trends in the media. We need to be aware of how media can push us to believe one thing or another. Um, and they do so through the racially coded language that I've been describing throughout this essay. So if you missed it, you can go back essays at jd-originals.com. You can find it there. You can read through it all. There's other essays as well that you can read. Um, I'm hoping that I can get a few more in this year. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I've got today. Um, I'm just going to do a quick little announcement thing, I guess. So I took a little break at the end of 2020 there, just like a, a week during Christmas and New Year's and everything. And so today was the start of my 2021. But the real start of like this whole series and everything, um, that's going to be starting this Tuesday. So Tuesday, I'm coming back full swing uh, back three days a week, which was what I was doing before the end of the year. Um, so, yeah. Three days a week, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, all at 7.30 a.m. Central Time. Um, and starting this Tuesday, I'm going to do just a quick review of 2020, just like some some wrap-up kind of stuff. Uh, so before I head out, this is Join the Discourse. Uh, and if you've got something to add, any questions, make sure you join the Discourse, join the conversation. So you can find my Discord server where you can you join the conversation there. Uh, that's at jd-originals.com, right on the homepage. Super easy to find. Uh, you can also email me at jaden at jd-originals.com with any comments or questions you have, and I'll be happy to bring that up in the next episode and discuss that live. Um, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, remember that you can listen on Spotify, you can listen on Apple Podcasts, you can listen on YouTube for free, you can play back on Periscope for free. Um, I'll probably say this almost every week, but Periscope is going to be gone within a few months, but I'm just going to keep it all on Twitter, keep my live stuff on Twitter. And so check me out there. Um, back to jd-originals.com. You can check out my YouTube channel as well on that page. Um, and my, I have a bunch of art videos I was doing over the summer. You can check past live streams. I was doing future live streams. I'm going to continue to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, um, I'm probably just going to call it right here. Uh, so yeah, thank you for watching.